Well, we've started Advent now. We're working the four weeks up until Christmas. Uh, this is that period of time where we anticipate this day that we celebrate. Advent meaning coming. That's what we're celebrating, the coming of Jesus Christ. One of the dangers of Advent is that it can become purely the celebration of a historic event. Uh, uh, Christmas itself has a lot of pageantry that we have around it. Uh, carols, familiar, they warm our heart. That's a good thing. But sometimes if we're not careful, we end up just celebrating, and truly it was a historic event, the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. But there's so much more that we're actually recognizing as the church during this season of Advent. We are certainly recognizing that historical event, the birth of Jesus. We are also recognizing, as we heard in the Advent reading today, uh, the coming of Jesus uh, and the death and resurrection of Jesus and what that did for us now. You see, we have salvation. The relationship that was broken between us and God now can be repaired through what Jesus did on the cross, through the resurrection. Something that was irreconcilable now can be reconciled. That which was broken, vandalized, diseased, damaged by sin can be fixed. That's a present reality that we can experience now through Jesus Christ. Then we also celebrate, and again you heard it through the scripture reading, the hope that we have, the final hope that we have in Jesus Christ. The second advent, the return, the coming again of Jesus. When the kingdom finally and fully arrives and King Jesus is fully and completely in control. That's what we're celebrating in these four weeks, not just a historic event. Certainly that's part of it, but so much more. And a reality even that can be present in our lives when we said yes to Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at hope, but the overarching theme that we're, we're covering this Advent season is peace. Conveniently on the wall up there, peace. So we remember each week. Peace, God's shalom for us wholeness, that which is broken being put together in right relationship, justified. That's what we're celebrating in Advent. And we're going to put ourselves into a story this morning in Isaiah chapter 2, and I'm going to encourage you to follow along when we get there. I'm going to open it in just a moment, but you can find it now. You can also find it on your mobile device. version has it ready to go for you. Um, as we get there, we're going to be entered into a, a story at in time, but it's, it's actually leading us into that well beyond that moment. I've been working through a book on preaching recently um, with another pastor uh, in our area. Um, he himself has a, a doctorate in preaching, so, and he's been at it for a few decades, so he's well-seasoned preacher. I'm just a journeyman in this thing, still learning the craft. But it's been fun. It's, it's an author I really like, uh, who I knew in Vancouver, Daryl Johnson, called The Glory of Preaching. And, and one of the things that Daryl picked up on, he, he was talking in one of his parts of, the, of one of the chapters about an article back in 1997 when the Star Wars remakes were coming out, if you recall, and, uh, or the reworkings, if you will. Um, he talks about this article by a man named Orson Card that was in the newspaper that made this suggestion that Star Wars is, a, is in fact our established religion in this country. Now, Johnson contends with him, but he says he's got a point at what he's getting at. He said you could argue all kinds of things could be the established religion for people, whether it's the American Dream or Star Wars or Star Trek, or take your pick, right? That, that what it does both Card and then Johnson argue, 
is that he says it, it doesn't give us morality, but it gives us a scripture for that morality. It gives us a way to voice that morality. To put it in the words of Johnson, he says, it gives us a scripture that makes the moral worldview clear and compelling, carrying it vividly into the hearts of believers. He doesn't agree with the worldview, but he says it does that for us. We can recognize if we take Star Wars, for example, that you have light and dark, co-equal forces battling against each other, one's going to win. We make decisions, it's a light decision or a dark decision, a good decision, a bad decision. It kind of gives us that framework to at least voice a morality. Now, I don't agree with the Star Wars theology. I think it profoundly messes up our biblical understanding of things because they're not co-equal forces, but you can see the point. But what, what Johnson gets to is not really the, the he says, I, I can contend with Card on a number of these issues. There's, I don't think he's totally on, but he's got a point. He says, what we want as humans is a deep story. It's a good frame, a good word. What we want is a deep story. We want to know that our personal story is a part of something bigger, has meaning in something larger than ourselves, and we're looking for that. We're constantly on the lookout for that. We don't like meaninglessness. Even if we think we do, we don't, actually. Studies continue to show this, that we just kind of can't deal with it. We want there to be meaning in art or in literature or even in a death, right? We want to know that there was meaning, that there was something there. We're looking for it. We want this deep story. And so this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah 2, where we get a particular story, a moment in history, but actually, Isaiah 2 broadens us out into this deep story that God is working out. Judah, who we're going to encounter, is part of that. And as it turns out, we actually are even part of this deep story that's going on. And so before I even get to it, I just got to put us in context, and then we'll read it piece by piece here. What we have is a divided kingdom in this period of time. Roughly the 700s BC is what we're talking about right now. We have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Uh, there will be a map, actually, that pops up here in a moment. Terry, if you want to put that up. Some people like that. Some of you can just ignore it if you don't. You have Israel and Judah. They've divided. They were one united kingdom. They divided. It only took them three kings before, there they go. They're two separate kingdoms. And by this point in time, you have Assyria, kind of just a little to the right and center of your map there, has become the superpower by this point. They're ready to, to take over anybody, and they'd rather do it in as easy a method as possible um, because they're pretty brutal. They're pretty vicious if they take over, and they're very mean, especially to the king, because they want to make a point. Just give in, otherwise it's going to go bad for you. If you give in, it'll go well. If you don't, we're going to make it really hard for you. So we send a message to everybody else, just give in. We're stronger, we're more powerful, we'll overtake. The problem is, little Judah... That's who Isaiah is preaching to, is the nation of Judah, the people of Judah. Judah is also being pestered by Syria to the north and the northern kingdom of Israel, kind of where you see Samaria there, that whole area. Those guys have created an alliance, and they've said to Judah, are you in or not? And they're kind of antagonizing them, saying, you've got to get in so we can stand up against Assyria. And I'm not even bringing up Egypt, which is still powerful enough to overtake them. So Judah's sandwiched in between all this. And Assyria's knocking at the door. In fact, Assyria's gotten close enough, as close as Omaha is to us. So you can imagine if you're that people, you're living in a bit of fear at this point. We could be overtaken at any time, and our king is a little bit confused, maybe, concerned. 
He doesn't know which way to go. Top it off, not only is Judah kind of in the middle of all of this sort of geopolitical tangle wrestling that's going on, but if you read Isaiah chapter 1, it really sets the stage. Read it this afternoon and you'll be sad. Then read chapter 2 again and you'll be happy. But read chapter 1 and you see that Judah is unfaithful to God. God says, I, I just want you to turn your heart, orient your heart to me, and yet, yet you've turned away from me. So not only did they have all these different powers physically trying to attack them, they themselves have turned away from God, and God's saying, I'm going to allow some of these powers to come in unless you turn back to me. And so if you look at Isaiah 1, 21 through 23, I'll just read it for you. You can listen. This just gives you an idea of what's going on. It says, see how the faithful city, that's Jerusalem, that's in Judah. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute, selling herself out to different gods. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. So they've turned their hearts from God too. And now they're going to pay the consequences if they don't turn. That's the stage. So it's so fascinating that that's what's going on. You've got this sort of dire message. And then Isaiah chapter 2 comes in and is really hopeful. It's really nice. So let's read the first two verses. Isaiah prophesies to Judah. It says, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, this is looking way ahead then. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Odd to find that right there, this puny little nation attacked from all sides, even from within, if you will. They're not even being faithful within. And here it says, that thing, the temple that's in your city, Jerusalem, where God's presence is supposed to dwell, in the last days, that thing, that temple, is going to be established as the highest of the mountains. Now, we have another picture coming up. If you go to Jerusalem today, where that gold dome is, that which is that's the temple mount, that's of course a mosque on there. But if you notice the vantage point, if you were to take this physically of the temple, it's getting a little beyond that, but if you were to take it physically, you're looking down on it, right? In Jerusalem, what says, it says mountain anyways, is not really a mountain, but a hill. So it's not even the tallest thing in its own city. And it's going to be the thing, the temple is going to be the thing that God's going to establish and everybody's going to look to it, all the nations are going to stream to it. It seems ridiculous on all fronts when you get down to it. You guys are assaulted from all sides, even from within, and the thing on not even the tallest hill, I mean, this is taken from the Mount of Olives. I've stood there, I've looked down on the thing too. You look down on it. That, that is what everybody's going to look towards, or at least that's what it appears. Zion is not the tallest mountain, but what we get here is a picture of hope, of what God is planning on doing in the long term, in the last days. This is going to take a while, God says. It's going to take a while for this to come. But what we can take away from the first part of this is that God's hope rules. And God's hope rules even in the darkest and most difficult 
times. That's what's happening. They're going through a very difficult time, one of their most difficult times. And yet, you get this glimpse of God's hope. It's not just the physical temple, but people are going to look to God and God's ways. That's what they're going to do. And God is doing something bigger than just this moment in time. It seems dark. It seems difficult. But there's something more going on. Go on to verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Again, it keeps pointing back to this place. It keeps pointing back to God's ways. And yet, you consider the context. Assyria seems really powerful. It seems like everybody should be doing their ways. In fact, that's how they do business. They're, they're less of a, an ethnic group. They're more of a people who just pull in everybody's stuff and all the different religions and everything and use the best things that they can find, and they really command the conversation. And they're knocking at the door. And yet, we get this bigger picture of the deeper story that God is inviting them into. Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of Jacob, of the God of Jacob. And you see in here, reference God's covenant faithfulness to his people, the God of Jacob. God is faithful. God is faithful to his people no matter what's going on. He says, but I'm asking for the same from you. Be faithful to me. Don't give yourselves up. Don't give yourselves away. Turn to me. Enter into this deeper story that we've been walking in for a long time. But we also see that people are going to stream to Zion to know God's ways and that it's, in fact, going to be a light to people. And we can recognize here that God's rule is right and good. So God gives us hope in the dark and difficult moments, but God's rule is right and good. We're looking ahead to that, but we can enter it now. He's calling his people back to it. And then verse 4, it says, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. God's way is best, and God's peace is lasting. The stereotypical answer to beauty pageant, what are your desires for the world, right? What is it? World peace. There is beauty pageant peace out there, and I, I guarantee you, for all of us in the room, or almost all of us in the room, I know that we are peaceful people. We want peace. I want peace. I'd love to see world peace. That'd be a brilliant thing. But I think we're reminded through history over and over again, and we're reminded in interpersonal relationships, if we get right down to it, over and over again, that peace is kind of hard to achieve sometimes. Not impossible. We can. But we kind of forget every so often. Every other generation or every generation kind of forgets what happened a couple generations ago, and we kind of, we forget. I was just watching a documentary on World War I recently where it was talking about how much even now we're affected by World War I in ways we don't know, in ways we don't recognize. And you look back and you see how all through history, even the past hundred years, each of the different nations that were involved has thought differently with each new generation about what the war was about, about what it was, even the name of the war, 
and we start to forget. Treaties fail, people change, times change, and we think we can achieve this peace, and yet, yet, it's going to fail. And that's not a very encouraging word. In fact, right now, you're probably thinking, Evan, you'd be a terrible motivational speaker. Peace will fail, right? I shouldn't go around doing this. But, but, part of the issue is the self is involved. Right? Once that gets involved, peace is going to fail. We need lasting peace, and that's something that the right judge can only give. God is going to come and judge the nations, it says. God is the one who can things back to right. God is the one who can keep things in the right order, and God is the one who can rule over all. And as you continue to read through the book of Isaiah, what you tend to find is that even though God uses other nations to judge Israel and Judah, he kind of rounds it out by saying, but guess what? These people think they're super powerful because they're judging you. I actually rule them. I actually rule over them, whether it's Assyria, whether it's Babylon, whether it's Persia later, whether it's Egypt in, in other parts. It doesn't matter. God says, I rule over all. Any earthly ruler that thinks that they are equal to me, thinks that they have that power, I rule over them. And you can see a great example, by the way, in the book of Daniel of a, a ruler who wouldn't uh, humble himself before God and he ends up eating the grass like an animal until he humbles himself. God rules over, and only God can provide that lasting peace. So we're given this, the long game that God is playing here through this. In the last days, God's going to establish all of this, and God will rule. Ultimately, though, there's this reminder in verse 5. It says, come descendants of Jacob. There's that covenant faithfulness again. Come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's a command. It's a reminder. Let us walk in God's ways. That's what we're supposed to do. Orient your heart the right way. Join in this deep story. It's the call to God's people. And you and I have the same call on us. You and I are entering into the same deep story if we have faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we're entering into. And your life should reflect God's sovereign rule, just like it should here. That God is the one who's ultimately in control. That God's the one who can put things to right. That God's hope is what reigns regardless of what goes on around us in the world. And so as we enter this Advent season, two pieces of encouragement I give to us. One is stay connected to the deep story. Stay deeply connected with the deep story of God's story of redemption that we see at play right here. That God's ways are light to the world. That God's rule is right and just. And we need to orient our hearts in that exact same direction. Stay connected to that deep story. If you look around at the, the crafty world of things that you can hang on your wall and put on shelves, uh, some of you are more into that than I am. Uh, I don't Pinterest, but I've looked at it before. And uh, you, you believe, popular phrase right now. It's interesting to think about what that means for, for different people. I've, I've often wondered, because it doesn't fill in the meaning. Just believe that's there. And I think we can fall into the trap sometimes of, of even if we are uh, calling on God to turn Scripture into a self-help book and become the best version of ourself rather than become like Jesus Christ, which is really the goal of following Jesus, the way of a disciple. We can fall into the danger of too much humanity 
and not enough God activity in our lives, where we can still do it ourselves. That's the world that Judah's in. We can still do this ourselves. They've turned away. We can, we can do whatever we want. We don't need that covenant faithful God and that relationship. And God says, yeah, you do, actually. Yeah, you really do. What's interesting is, is even as I was researching uh, the Isaiah passage, every year we get to Advent and a couple Isaiah texts come up. Um, and I have, I have a few different Isaiah commentaries on my shelf. One of them, it's a beautiful book. Uh, I got it used because I love to get used books when I can. And I open it up every year and think, why do I keep this commentary? It is ridiculous. It is an awful commentary. And I think, I need to get rid of it, not give it away. I need to put it in the trash or something because I don't want other people to read it. It's a, it's a terrible commentary. Well written grammatically, but what's in it is just terrible content. And yet every year I hold on to it. And this year I read a little bit of it again. And here you have the same thing. The scholar says... Uh, you know, he points out that if you look at this text, and most scholars will point this out to you, any good scholar will point out that Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, if you opened up to Micah 4, you'd see almost the exact same text. It's the, almost the exact same prophecy in Micah chapter 4. And, and this scholar points out, well, there's about four different ways that you can kind of cut it as a scholar if you're working with this. Um, and I don't even know if he outlines all four. He kind of just outlines the one he likes most. And, and one of them, though, he says, he says it could be it could be that God gave the prophecy to both Micah and Isaiah, and it was recorded. But that would rest on a belief in the inspiration of Scripture, that God was the one who gave the prophecy. But as a scholar, we have to outright reject that, is what he says. I'm putting it in my words. Humanizing it, right? Once you've done that, you can do anything you want with the book. It becomes a self-help text at that point. No longer does God rule over you. I rule over the text. Now, this, this prophecy is given, and we are supposed to enter. We are as much invited to enter in to the deep story. So stay close to the deep story. Don't try and rule over it. Let it rule over you. Let the God of the deep story, in fact, rule over you. Second thing, by way of encouragement, let hope rule your circumstances. Recognize the value of what we're offered in that deep story, particularly through Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives a whole lot of parables. This is part of where this, this whole Isaiah text is going, to this kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God in this world, fully and finally. And Jesus gives all these parables. All the parables have to do with the kingdom of God. Matthew says kingdom of heaven. In this one verse, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. We recognize that the, the deep story we're being entered in or asked to enter into, particularly through Jesus Christ, that's the way in. That's valuable. Although, as you can see in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 2, the circumstances wouldn't suggest to the rest of the world that it has any value. It would look like it's weak and puny and nothing. It's like this field, undeveloped. There's something in it. Nobody appears to have noticed that. This guy notices it. He says, that's valuable. I'm in. So too do we need to be with the deep story. We need to say, even though the circumstances might look like they don't embrace the story of Jesus, the hope that Jesus gives us, even though the season may look like it's just about a historical event, we embrace something more valuable. We see something more that God is doing in this season and beyond through Jesus Christ. 
when we embrace the deep story through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So God's rule, we can recognize, is right and is good. And this parable would lead us on to say, and we should rearrange our lives to discover and live God's way. So too does Isaiah encourage us the same way. People of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us stay close to the one who gives us the hope, who gives us the story to enter into, who gives us the redemption. We are encouraged the exact same way to enter into that. Let me give you two stories to to kind of round things out here and illustrate uh, letting hope rule your circumstances to seek God's hope no matter what's going on. One is Joseph. You read Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph goes through some difficult moments, doesn't he? And yet somehow, through being uh, almost killed by his brothers, then saved by one of them, but then sold into slavery, and then being unjustly uh, accused of a crime he didn't commit, thrown in jail for that crime for a long time, forgotten about, then he comes out and it's clear that he was a part of a bigger picture and a bigger story of what God was doing. But he sure had to hold it together for a long time, didn't he? He sure had to have a hope in something greater than that moment. And he seems to have an integrity of faith about that, that we can gather from him. I'm sure he had his dark moments. We all will, and we all do. But he could see something beyond the moment, a hope. And then, of course, he's shown that he's in something bigger. He has a serious part to play in that. And we can continue to see in Scripture that God, in fact, wants your best and my best and better. God has planned accordingly so that your best and my best can be actually achieved in the long game that God is playing. The question is, do we believe it? Do we believe that God actually rules and, in fact, has our best in mind in this whole thing? The other story I would bring up is a little bit kind of in between biblical texts, if you will, but if you were to read the very end of the Old Testament, Micah chapter 4, it talks about judgment and covenant renewal, Uh, but the last two verses say, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to, to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And we know that Elijah becomes John the Baptist. We know that he's doing something. Stay close to the deep story. He's giving them the law. He's saying, remember how to walk with God. Stay close to that. God is up to something. And then what happens after this? Nehemiah and Malachi end up being sort of the last... Uh, uh, parts of the Old Testament story, and you have almost 400 years of what we call silence from God. No prophecy, no judges, no kings, no nothing. But in that time, if you study history, you discover that the people try and take things into their own hands. For 100 years, they get peace. They wrestle the land away and get peace, but it's not lasting. The Romans come in. And it was pretty turbulent up to that point anyways. And after almost 400 years of silence, what happens? A baby comes and changes everything. God's plans still coming to fruition. Stay connected to your hope. Stay connected to the deep story. Let hope rule your circumstances. Seek out God's best 
with all you have in this season of Advent as we gather together. In fact, we've got enough people in here that some of you had to move from your normal spots, I'll point out. Uh, That's a good thing. In the season of Advent, embrace the story deeper than ever. Study, devote yourself to the story in Scripture. Devote yourself in a deeper way to prayer than you have in the past. Gather together as much as possible to worship the God who invites you into that story. That story of redemption. Because we can't do it ourselves. Once the self gets involved, we have a problem. That's why Jesus came to fix that. To bring us in to God's rule and reign. And that starts even now. Let's join together in prayer. God, for those of us who feel far from your story, draw us close. Open up in new ways the story that you have. The story that's beyond us and our abilities. The story that's been going on for generation upon generation. Bring us into that story through your son, Jesus Christ. For those of us that know Jesus, God, bring us into that relationship in a new and deeper way this season. For those of us that don't, God, may your Holy Spirit work on our hearts. That we would be drawn into your presence in a way we've never experienced before. God, we thank you that you rule even now. We thank you that you are working for our best and you are working for your best. And it is your salvation that you work out, as Psalm 98 tells us. Help us sing for joy to you. Help us recognize what you are doing and live into that hope, regardless of what's going on around us. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.